Let's take out our Bibles now and turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2. Recently begun a series on 1 John and Covenant of Grace, and the sermon that I'm bringing to you tonight is the most recent sermon that I've preached there. We'll read 1 John 2, verses 1 through 17, and the text is verses 3 through 6. This is God's Word. My little children, These things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong. And the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We read the holy and divine word of God this far, and we ask for God's blessing 
to our hearts and minds on the reading of his word. Our text is verses 3 through 6. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. A few general things about this letter, beloved. First of all, whom was it written to and why? The Apostle John writes this as the title of the epistle indicates as a general epistle or general letter, meaning it was not addressed to one particular congregation of churches in the known world, as the letters of Paul often were, but it was addressed to congregations, established churches generally, as they were scattered throughout the then known world, the Roman Empire. It is written to believers in the late first century of the church. John was by this time an old man, and he is writing late in life to believers whom he loved, for whose spiritual welfare he cared, and especially in light of the text we'll consider tonight, whose assurance of their salvation he was peculiarly interested in strengthening and helping them to maintain. He wrote this because the faith of New Testament believers was was threatened. It was threatened by a false teaching that had arisen within the church and was quickly becoming a sect within the church. That False teaching goes by various names, but one that you may have heard is Gnosticism, from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. And this philosophy taught that it was all right to believe in Jesus and to keep the commandments of God, but in order to be really assured that you were a Christian, you needed to go beyond that. You needed to be enlightened. You needed to come into possession of superior knowledge, and you had to have extra experiences beyond what the Bible laid down for Christians. The Gnostics said to ordinary Christians, ordinary men and women and young people living in the church and living faithfully in their daily station in life, you know, it's not enough that you believe in Jesus. You need to be initiated into our peculiar rites and ceremonies. You need to enter into the secrets of our superior knowledge. You need to have experiences like we've had. Peculiar experiences beyond what the scriptures instruct you to look for in your life as Christians. And the practical result of this, of course, is that there were believers, enough believers throughout the church that the Apostle John 
felt compelled, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write to these believers. He knew that it didn't threaten their salvation, this teaching of the Gnostics. Nothing threatened their salvation. That was secure in Christ. But his concern was their assurance of their salvation, that they could be certain that they knew and abided in Jesus. So John wrote to strengthen the faith of first century Christian believers and to remind them that they could have and that they did have assurance of their salvation. First John chapter 5, verses 13 is a sort of theme for the entire book. There John says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. For their assurance, John points to two categories of things. I I speak of categories because I'm addressing what John is saying here from two points of view or drawing a distinction between two things that John says believer that give believers assurance of their salvation the first is the foundation of their assurance the foundation of their assurance which was and is the person and work of Jesus Christ himself that's where John begins his letter by expounding and giving testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ as he was an eyewitness to it while Jesus was on earth. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. In chapter 1 verse 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. And what is that? That is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And John says, through our declaring it unto you, ye have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we declare to you, he says, the foundation of our assurance, who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he accomplished while he was on earth. The righteousness he accomplished for sinners. He picks up this theme in chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's who he is. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only. But also for the sins of the whole world. That's his work. His atoning work. His cross work. The shedding of his blood to blot out the handwriting of our sins against us. That, John says, is the foundation for every Christian's assurance that Jesus Christ took away, appeased the wrath of God against our sins by the sacrifice of himself. The foundation of our assurance. But John doesn't only look at the foundation of our assurance. He speaks also of what we might call 
the circumstances of our assurance. What do I mean by that? Well, he gives some examples of that in chapter 1 also. He speaks, for example, in verse 7 of walking in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. This is walking in truth, walking in honesty with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Together we confess faith in Christ, therefore we walk together, we live together in our lives, in our homes, our marriages, with our children, at school, here in the congregation, we live in the light. We walk as brothers and sisters in the light. And in verse 9 of chapter 1, the apostle gives another circumstance of assurance. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. These are circumstances that belong to our assurance in the sense that they are not the foundation of the house or the ground that we walk on as believers. That's Jesus Christ. But they're the atmosphere that we live in. You understand that analogy with regard to a plant. A plant can have water and sunshine. But if it isn't rooted in good soil, that plant and you have no you have no assurance that that plant will survive. That's an analogy that John is speaking of here. We are rooted in Christ. And therefore the water and light as it were of walking in the light and and confessing our sins and as we'll consider in our text, obeying or keeping his commandments are the circumstances of our assurance. That means the converse is also true. If you do not walk in the light, if you walk in sin and you try to hide it from others, if you live in your sin without confession and repentance, for example, as David did after his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, if you do not obey God's commandments but habitually disobey them, you cannot have and you will not enjoy the assurance of your salvation. Your salvation isn't threatened, but your assurance of salvation cannot exist where you do not walk in the light, where you are not confessing your sins, where you do not Obey God's commandments. These are the necessary circumstances to the enjoyment of our salvation. That's what the apostle is saying. And when these are present in our lives, they are evidence to us of our faith, of our living connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. Be very clear about that, beloved. They're not evidence of our justification. They're not evidence that we are righteous in Christ. That's the person and work of Jesus himself. 
And that isn't what John says in our text either. He says, by this we know that we know him. By this we know that we are united to him by faith, that we keep his commandments. This is a proof of the work of God. It is a proof that the king of glory is passing on his way in your life and in the lives of those you love and live with in the light. That you walk in the light. That you confess your sins. That you keep his commandments. And that's what we're going to look at this evening. We'll take as our theme the words of verse 3 of 1 John 2. By this we know that we know him. We'll look first at the question of assurance. Secondly, the evidence of obedience. And third, the, the example of Jesus. What is assurance, beloved? What is your assurance of your salvation? It's a very important question, and it's a question that the apostle answers, and it's an idea that he gives definition to in especially two phrases in our text. He says, by this we know that we know him, and in verse 6, by this we know that we are in him, rather the end of verse 5. By this we know that we know him, and by this we know that we are in him. We know that we know him, he says. The word know, or knowledge in scripture, as I'm sure you've heard before, is not a mere intellectual knowledge about God or about Jesus or about some spiritual thing, but it is a living knowledge, a knowledge of relationship. A knowledge of love that you come to through experience. This word know describes the essence or or the the nitty gritty, if we can put it that way. the, The heart and soul of what salvation is. It is to know God and it is to, to, to be known by Him. It is to know the Lord Jesus in His person and in in His work. It is to know God as your Father and Jesus as the word of life through whom you have eternal life. Jesus defines salvation this way in John 17 verse 3. This is eternal life, he said. That my people know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This knowledge for us and for the children of God that John was writing to is a personal knowledge. It isn't only a knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners, but it is the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Savior of this sinner. God is the Heavenly Father of this adopted son or daughter. This personal knowledge of God is put into words by the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12 when he's in prison and he's facing death this is where he draws his comfort from 
in his final moments, in his final days. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have entrusted to him. That's his salvation. Against that day. Or in Galatians 2 verse 20, where the Apostle Paul speaks of the Savior who loved him and gave himself for him. That's an expression of salvation, of salvation, of knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Assurance is to know God and to believe in him, not just to know about him. John says we know that we know him. We are assured that we know him. And then he says we know that we are in him. In verse 5, we know that we are in him or that we abide in him. And here John is not coming up with an idea out of his own mind, but he is referencing the words of Jesus himself and the metaphor that Jesus drew for his disciples in John chapter 15. I am the true vine, Jesus declared, and you are the branches. Abide in me, and I in you. Jesus illustrated the relationship between himself and his people as a living connection between a vine and its branches, and illustrated that connection, or illustrated by that connection, the mutual abiding. Abide in me, and I in you. The idea Jesus was conveying with those words, and that John is reminding the Christians that he is writing to of is that all of our life, all of our spiritual life is in Jesus Christ. All of our life as God's saved people comes from him and we rest in him and we trust in him and we find all of our salvation in him just as the branch finds its life in the vine and in the sap that flows into it from the vine. You understand this, is, this not only gives us a sense of union with Christ, but a sense of belonging to him. We belong to Jesus. A single Christian need not be a lonely Christian. If they can say, I know that I abide in him. That's salvation to know Jesus, to abide in him, to rest in him. This is faith, a living connection with Jesus Christ. And John says we can know that we know him. We can be assured that we are united to Jesus Christ, that we have a living connection with him through faith. We have a knowledge ourselves that we know him, that we abide in him and love him. We can say in the words of question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism, I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who redeemed me by his precious blood, who delivered me from the power of the devil, 
who preserves me and who makes me willing and ready to live to him. This is assurance to know that we know him, to know that we abide in him. When you have this assurance, beloved, every day is Easter. When you know that you know the risen Jesus because he has given you faith through his spirit. The text brings out two characteristics of this assurance. The apostle does when he says in verse 3, by this we know that we know him. He speaks of assurance as a present reality. And he speaks of it as a reality, not a possibility. John speaks of assurance as a present reality. When he says in verse 3, by this we know or hereby we do know that we know him. He's using the same word, know, but he's using it in two different senses. And this is the idea. By this we know now that we have known Christ in the past. He's speaking of the assurance that the believers he is writing to and that we have now because we have been known by Christ from eternity and because at some point in our earthly life He has brought us into a living relationship with himself through regeneration and sanctification by the Spirit. And the present reality then is that we know that we know him. It's a present knowledge of our past and perfected and completed salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You, beloved, and I can know that we know him today. And that's real. That's not a possibility. It's not a future thing. John doesn't say we will know that we know him if we have some special religious experience, perhaps. That's what the Gnostics were saying. But we do know that we know him. This is a reality. A bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. And John says, you have this bird in hand. God is real. His work in you is real. Assurance is real. But now, if you've been tracking with what the Apostle's saying, you no doubt have the question, as, as I do too, from time to time, how is it then that the truths that belong to our salvation And our experience as believers do not always seem to be in alignment. The truths of salvation are that 
God is unchangeable. His work is unchangeable. His work of saving us through Jesus Christ is unchangeable. Our regeneration is irreversible. That's what John's talking about in verse 8 when he says, The darkness is past and the true light now shineth. As far as you're concerned, beloved, the darkness is past and the true light is now shining. That it cannot be reversed. The work of God, the Holy Spirit, is never, never ceases in the people of God once he begins that work at regeneration. The promises of God and his word are unchangeable. And yet, it's true, isn't it? That the reality of our experience can sometimes be doubt and uncertainty with regard to our own salvation. Or to put it a different way, the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of saving us is accomplished. That work can't be undone. And yet the scriptures testify, and our own experience does too, that as believers we often have to struggle in this world with various carnal doubts with regard to our salvation. Or that we're not always as sensible and conscious of this full assurance of faith and certainty of persevering as John states it in our text. That assurance with regard to our faith and with regard to persevering as children of light in this world does not always seem to be as real as the apostle says it is. The problem is not a theoretical one. This is a very practical question for God's people all of God's people at some point in their life am I one who knows God am I one whom God knows in the intimacy of his covenant fellowship and of his marriage to his church through Jesus Christ am I one who abides in Christ do I have eternal life This can be a question. And why is that, beloved? There's different reasons for that. And we'll look at some of them now. Sin is a reason that we can struggle with assurance. Sins, forgiven but haunting. Sins of youth, committed many years ago, but with consequences continuing to the present day. Sins that rise up against us and cause us to wonder, has God in fact saved me? Can God save me? What I've done is so terrible. What I've committed is so awful. How could God forgive me? Or the struggle with sin in the present is such that we... We have our devotions. We are in God's word. We, we read the gospel. By this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. And then we, we, we go out to live life practically. 
And the power of indwelling sin rises up against us like a tiger. And some circumstance that we come into or that faces us confronts us with a powerful temptation so that we feel ourselves in the grip of the flesh. And we wonder, how, could this, how can this be when I know Christ? Perhaps some besetting sin that we fall into again and again makes us wonder, am I really delivered from sin? Do I really have the Holy Spirit at work in me? Now, beloved, these can be difficult questions to answer when we face them in our own lives. But from a pastoral point of view, it's a wonderful thing that children of God do ask these questions because those who don't know Christ and those who aren't known by Him don't bother themselves with these questions at all. They're not concerned about keeping God's commandments. They're not concerned about walking in the light. They're not concerned about confessing their sins. They're only concerned about satisfying their lusts and their sinful desires. It's the child of God who wrestles with these questions, even in the face of besetting sins. An unbeliever isn't concerned with them or with the fact that he's committed sin against the most high majesty of God. But sin can also cause us to struggle with assurance and even lead to the complete absence of assurance in our life for a time when we go on in a pattern or lifestyle of sin without repentance. And that was David's experience in Psalm 32. He raped Bathsheba, he arranged for the murder of her husband, and he went on in those sins for a period of time, at least until the child that he and Bathsheba conceived together was born. He went through the motions of walking in the light, but he was walking in darkness. He was not confessing his sins. And he says in Psalm 32, God's hand was heavy on me. My bones grew old through my roaring all the day. My moisture was turned into the drought of summer until... God turned me and I was turned and I confessed sin. So sin, beloved, is something that causes us to wrestle with the question of assurance. Another thing that can cause a struggle with assurance to ensue is a lack of trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ and a lack of understanding of the sufficiency of the cross and suffering of Jesus Christ to take away our sins. A lack of trust in the gospel. If your conception of God, beloved, is of a dark judge up in heaven who is waiting for you to stumble and fall here on earth so that he can strike you with his thunderbolt, so that he can bring the full force of his wrath upon you, so that if you only think of God in terms of wrath and holiness and justice and dare not lift your eyes to confess your sins and your sinfulness, to ask for forgiveness through Jesus Christ and see God in the revelation of his grace and mercy in Christ, 
that lack of faith and trust in the gospel is going to lead to a struggle with assurance in your life. If all you hear are the threats and not the promises of the gospel, and there is preaching that, that teaches the people of God that, it, that this is how they must view God and this is how they must live. Because the preacher is probably concerned with a lack of holiness in the life of his congregation. And so he he brings home to them the wrath of God and the justice of God and the judgment of God and the threats of God's word. And when one struggling soul comes up for air and says, I am saved. I know that I know him. Then the preacher is right there to question Can you be sure? Or another reason that we as children of God can struggle with assurance is because of an unbiblical view of the sovereignty of God with regard to the trials and the difficulties of our life. Rather than looking at the the tribulations of our life, As the Apostle Paul teaches us to in Romans 5 when he says that trials are given exactly to draw us closer to God. And that tribulations work experience. And experience works hope and hope does not make ashamed. When trials come into our life we immediately think God is angry with me. God is doing me to destruction. Still another reason we may struggle with assurance is false teaching and being under false teaching for a long time. Two forms of that in particular. Legalism or works righteousness That says if you live by a certain set of rules, if you go to our church, if you do our thing, then you can think of yourself as saved. But if you don't do what we do, then you can't have that assurance. There are churches that preach that as though they have a monopoly on salvation. That's what caused Luther such a struggle in the Roman Catholic Church because he did everything that the church required. He did everything that the church set before him as the way to attain to holiness. He went to a monastery. He outmonked all the other monks. He confessed his sins for hours at a time. He confessed his sins after confessing his sins. He harmed his health permanently through the vigils of the monastery But that lifestyle never brought him assurance. It was only when he came to rest in Christ and believed in Jesus and put away the legalism of his particular church institution that he said the gates of heaven were thrown open to him and his soul was suffused with heavenly light and joy. But 
that legalism caused many of Luther's later difficulties even after becoming a reformer. His struggles with assurance, his onfectungen, he called them, his, his spiritual struggles with the, with the, so that he felt he was struggling with the devil himself, they stemmed from the fact that he had grown up and that he had lived for years under the false teaching of works righteousness. <clears throat> Another false doctrine that leads believers to struggle with assurance is to be told you need to be able to point to something in your past, an experience or a date on which you were converted. You need to be get, able to give our day and time when you were converted. You need to be able to give your testimony. You need to have a conversion experience to know that you're saved. Well, that's a problem, isn't it, beloved? Because not everybody has a dramatic conversion experience to tell. A child, a child who is raised from their youngest years in the church, who is taught about Jesus by their parents in the home, who has read the Bible stories, who has taught the promises of God, who has taught the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, and who loves those things as they grow up, even though they don't understand them. They can say the words and they love the words. They sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, with their heart. Because God is at work in them already as a child. So that they know that they know him. Then maybe they grow up and they end up in a place where they're told, you need to have a conversion experience. And if you can't give one, you can't have assurance. That sounds like Gnosticism, doesn't it, beloved? So these are, these are different things that will cause believers that may have caused you or that are causing you to struggle with your assurance. And it compound this. Is that there are those who say they have assurance who really shouldn't have it. There are those who say they know him. But they're not keeping his commandments. They're not walking in the light. They're not confessing their sins. They have no right to assurance and yet they will proclaim as loudly as anybody that they know him. Don't we see that in our society, beloved? How many people won't you stop on the street who may not even claim to be religious, but who will tell you that they do believe there's some kind of heaven and that they're going there. A place where they can fish or where they can play golf forever. But just because they talk about heaven, it doesn't mean that they're going there. John's talking about that here as well. They say, I know him, I abide in him, but you look at their life and there's no evidence at all that you can see. When you look at their marriage, there's nothing there. When you look at how they raise their kids, there's nothing there. When you look at their life in their, in their business or as an employee, 
They're not walking in the light. And yet they say, I know Jesus. Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. And John says that kind of false security is the most dangerous situation for anyone to be in because those who are convinced that they're saved are the most difficult to convince that they need to be saved. Jesus says that not all who say to him, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not all who say we have prophesied or, or preached in the name of Jesus or done many mighty works in his name. That's Matthew 7. Jesus will respond to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. And then what does Jesus say? Those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven. So is Jesus pulling out the works card there and saying it's a, it's, salvation is by works after all? John knows better, beloved. He says, by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Obedience to God's commandments is evidence of faith. Now, there's a few things to note about this answer that John gives. First of all, it's not a complete answer. It's not a complete answer even in the context of 1 John. John gives many evidences of faith. <clears throat> For example, in chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Or verse, chapter 3, verse 19, by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him if we love one another not only in word or in tongue but in deed and in truth. You may say, well, that's all a form of keeping God's commandments, and it is, but John is saying here, don't pin all your hopes on this one thing. Then again, we should repeat that this is not the foundation of our assurance, that we keep his commandments. And that's not what John says either. By this we know that we are righteous before God. That's not what he says. That's only found by looking at the work of Jesus Christ. Assurance of our justification only comes by looking to the perfect work of Jesus Christ. John is saying keeping God's commandments is an evidence that we are in him. And this assurance is not produced by any peculiar revelation of God independent from or in addition to the testimony of his word. But this assurance springs from faith in the promises of God. Faith in the promises of God abundantly revealed in Holy Scripture. 
such as John gives in chapter 2, verse 25. This is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. Assurance springs from the testimony of the Holy Spirit in my conscience, in my inner person, that I am a child of God. This testimony of the Spirit with my spirit, that I am a son or daughter of God. That's what John says in chapter two, verse, or chapter 3, verse 24. Hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. And then too, we know that we know him from a serious and holy desire to preserve a good conscience and to perform good works. So this is only part of the answer, beloved that we keep his commandments. And John's purpose, remember, is to say to believers, you can have assurance. The Gnostics are telling you you need something special. You need some special knowledge. You need to enter there and be initiated into their rites. You need to look for something more than that. You live your life in submission to the will of God. He says, no, you can have assurance today that you know him if you keep his commandments. When he says this, he's following again the words of Jesus. We've Referred already to Matthew 7, verse 21, where Jesus says, Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven. But in many other places in the Gospels, Jesus says something similar to this. Consider his discourse or conversation with his disciples. Again, the night that he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified in the upper room. He reiterated this theme over and over. In John 14, verse 15, for example, if ye love me, keep my commandments. In verse 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Or John 15, verse 10. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. John now says the same thing. By this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. What John is saying, beloved, is very simple. Every true believer Every true son or daughter of God who has been elected, justified through Christ's death on the cross, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, raised up to new life, is concerned to submit themselves to the will of God as revealed in his commandments. A true and genuine concern for every believer is that they obey the house rules of their heavenly Father 
as expressed through his moral commandments in the Ten Commandments as well as in Jesus' interpretation of the law or summary of the law that it is that we love God and we love our neighbor as ourselves. There's a real concern for every believer. John isn't referring here simply to an outward or duty obedience to God's law. Christianity is not simply following a set of rules. I do this and I don't do this. I go here, but I don't go there, especially on Sundays. Therefore, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Sunday and I do this with my family during the week. Maybe you've run into people who say, I'm a Christian because I haven't touched a drop of alcohol in so many years. Now, if if that individual's problem was really alcohol, then praise the Lord they have been delivered from bondage. But not touching a drop of alcohol for a certain period of time, beloved, does not make you a Christian. And if someone means that now that they're a Christian, they don't do that, and that defines what their Christianity is, that's not what John is saying here. He's talking about heartfelt obedience to God's commandments from love. And that is why he uses the word keep in verse 3. And not simply the word obey. And again in verse 5. Whoso keepeth his word. That word keep has the idea of treasuring and protecting something that is precious to you. Something that you love. Something that you do not want damage to come to. As Christian husbands, we protect, we keep our relationship with our wives. That doesn't mean we desire to protect our wives and our families from harm, but that we treasure our relationship with our wives in the bond of marriage. We keep that because it's precious to us, it's important, we love it. It isn't just a physical connection, but it's the knowledge, the intimate knowledge that we have of the wife that God has given us that's important to us. And that shows in all of our life then that we keep that relationship to our spouse. John says this is what the commandments of God are to the true child of God. Their sentiment, their expression, their heartfelt uh, uh, confession and testimony is that of the psalmist. In Psalm 119, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. That word is precious to me. It's my treasure. Or Psalm 119, verse 97, How love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Or what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7 verse 22. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. The law of God is my delight. It's my treasure. John says, whoso 
keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. When you see a man or woman, when you see in yourself a treasuring of God's word, beloved, you may know that you are a mature Christian, that you are being brought to spiritual maturity in Jesus Christ. That God's commandments are not simply a duty to fulfill, but a lifestyle to live. John says, by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Assurance is not some elusive extra that you have to work your whole life to try to attain to and may die without ever having come to. John says assurance is a thing you can't have now. To see what keeping God's commandments looks like, John sets before us the example of Jesus. Verse 6, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Now this may be intimidating, beloved, and probably be unhealthy if it wasn't. Because John is saying here, we need to be like Christ. And when that standard is set before us, beloved, it, it is a daunting and maybe even a troubling thing. But consider this about the obedience of Christ. Jesus isn't talking here about doing everything that Jesus did in his life. He's talking here about the character or the characteristics of the obedience of Christ. And what was Christ's obedience? It was submission to the will of God for his life. Submission to the law of God as well as to the purpose of God in his life, even to the death of the cross. Christ's obedience to the Father's will was costly. It cost him. It cost him the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. It cost him his friends, his family, his life, his very life. Jesus' obedience to the Father's will was perfect. It was without sin. Jesus' concern in his obedience was not for his own honor, but for the Father's glory. His declaration over all of his life in John 17 verse 4 was, I have glorified thee on the earth. That was his motivation in obeying the Father's commandments. And finally, Jesus obeyed God in relation to others. He loved his neighbor as himself. He was merciful to the needy. When he was hated, but he never returned evil for evil. When he was nailed to the cross, he prayed for his persecutors. There's more that you can glean, beloved, from the life of Christ when you read it and when you meditate on it in the gospel. And John is saying it's worthy of your meditation. If you're between devotional 
between biblical topics or books in your devotional life. Go to the Gospels and read and meditate on the life of Christ and see that his obedience was submission to the Father's will, was costly, was perfect, was for God's glory, and was lived in relation to others. And then don't be intimidated, beloved, but let that bring you back to the very matter of assurance itself. Because we who are in Christ have the beginning of perfect obedience. Romans 8 verse 29 says that those whom God knew in love before the foundation of the world and chose to be his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, he chose to be conformed to the image of his son. And that is the project that God is relentlessly working on and unrepentantly working on and irreversibly working on through the whole course of our earthly life from regeneration to glorification. It is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And when that project is complete on earth, God will bring us to himself in glory. Beloved, know that while you are on this earth, God is working in you. And when you look at your life and you see there that you keep God's commandments, perfection is not what the apostle is talking about. But when you see it present, thank the Lord and be assured that you know him. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for the gospel. We thank thee for Jesus, our Savior. We thank thee that he establishes a living bond with us such that he lives within us by his spirit pours into us his resurrection life. We thank thee for the sanctifying project thou art working even now in all of our lives. Father, if there are any of us here who do not yet know the Lord, may we come to know him tonight and begin to keep his commandments as we have never kept them before. Father, hold before us the pattern of our Lord Jesus and give us zeal to follow him as faithful disciples, knowing that the victory has already been won, the crown of glory is already laid up. The struggle that we have here below that is sometimes very real and almost overwhelming is not one to be afraid of but is to persevere through with assurance and hope, knowing that we fight in the strength of Jesus himself. In Jesus' name, amen.